Drive is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Georgie Gardner and welcome to Drive, a future women podcast about women on their way. This episode is brought to you by Uber Eats, thousands of local restaurants available in under 30 minutes. Download the app today. Each week, I speak to accomplished and interesting women about their enviable careers, as well as how they manage to make time and space for themselves. From work and life advice to travel and wellness tips. I find out what engages them and, where possible, pass on their shortcuts. White privilege is a term we've heard frequently this year, amplified possibly in response to the death in the United States of George Floyd, which, as we well know, sparked global condemnation of systemic racism. The outcry for justice garnered much-needed attention from mainstream media outlets and also from world leaders, and it forced organisations and institutions to assess their own hierarchies, their own social culture. While racism and discrimination permeates through every aspect of life, it is noticeably present in the workplace. I read a a Forbes article recently that cited research from McKinsey and it found that ethnic and racial minorities, LGBTQI individuals and women were all less likely to pursue a job opportunity because they didn't feel the company was inclusive enough. It also found that a staggering 84% of respondents had experienced microaggressions at work and that white people still dominate positions of leadership and get paid more. Unearned advantage is rife. Many doors open and opportunities present for certain people through no virtues of their own, but courtesy of their race or gender or physical ability or age or sexual orientation. My guest today is someone who's experienced discrimination in various forms and it has provided her with great insight and an enormous sense of empathy, a trait that is central to her role as Global Head of Equitable Design and Impact at Culture Amp. Aubrey Blanche, welcome to Drive. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Aubrey, you're referred to as the math path. Now, I need you to explain what that means. Yeah, so the math path is this idea of the combination of a a math nerd and an empath. It was a work that I did with a a branding firm called Individual, but it's not really just a branding thing. It was, um, I work in sort of the social justice and corporate and technology spaces, and I was struggling to sort of explain my work and what I do. And as we got deeper into it, we realized that it was really the union of those two things, which is this very empirical sort of science and math driven strategy that was really, really grounded in this like deep sense and and practice of empathy. 
So I, I joke that, yeah, I'm, I'm the math path and, and, you know, what do I do? I do power math, which is sort of taking a mathematical and a science-based approach to designing systems that equitably distribute power. A lot of folks think of that as diversity and inclusion, and, and I'm trying to take that a little bit further. It's a really fascinating hybrid. I'm, I'm interested to know where the passion for people and caring originated from. If you asked my parents, they would tell you that I was just kind of always that way. So a story that my dad told me about myself that I did not remember, um, that I laugh at now because it feels so silly and on point. I was, you know, five or six and I had learned something and I, I ran into the room and I said, you know, dad, I just learned this thing. And I was so upset. And I said, it's not fair. And my dad looked at me, you know, probably thinking he was about to have like a big uh, parenting moment, existential parenting moment and said, well, you know, Aubrey, the world's not fair. And I got so upset at him and I ran out of the room and he followed me and he found me and he said, why are you upset? And I said, what a lazy thing for you to say. And so I think I've always been a little bit of this person and I maybe just have gotten a little taller. <laughs> Not much taller. We'll get to that. Not much. <laughs> so clearly that sense of empathy and that complete desire for equality was there from a very young age. Tell us then about what you've encountered along the way in terms of discrimination, those times when you felt you were denied an equal opportunity. Is there a particular example that's had a lasting effect and, and perhaps set you on this path? Yeah, I think there were a couple of specific sort of things in my life that I would say woke me up to what was happening around me. So my story is quite interesting in that for folks who, who, who aren't familiar with me, so I'm a, a Mexican-American woman and I was born into a family that struggled quite a bit. So, so I was born into a family that was low income, there were a lot of substance and mental health challenges and a lot of those things. And I was adopted a little bit later. So when I was three by a different family, although I maintained my relationships with my, with my biological family. And what is perhaps relevant is that uh, for folks, this is a podcast, you can't see me. I'm actually very white passing. So if you, if you didn't know that I was a racial minority, you wouldn't guess it based on my eye color. And that's really important because for most of my life, I worked really, really hard. And I had sort of heard these ideas about, you know, women not getting their fair shot or people of color not getting their fair shot. And I, I think I, I almost ignored that because it wasn't happening to me. And so I didn't have something to hang that on. And when I got to grad school, I learned some things that really shifted my perspective. So first... For the first time in my life, when I was at Stanford, I was explicitly denied opportunities because of my gender. So I had male professors who said that they couldn't work with me because they, quote, wouldn't be able to treat me the same as my male colleagues. And then secondarily, I was put in a student group with many other um, Black and Hispanic students. And because I had grown up in a very white community, I didn't actually grow up around a lot of people from my culture. And so I thought all of the racism that had happened to me throughout my life was just an Aubrey problem. But sitting with that student group, I started to realize the stories that I was hearing coming out of my colleagues' mouths were very similar to mine or, or felt related. And so that was really when I woke up and realized, like, this sounds very stupid, but racism is real. 
And then over the next sort of year, it became really clear to me that I've had an incredible set of opportunities in my life, education, professional, otherwise. And it just became really clear that I couldn't think up a more ethical thing to do with that opportunity than use the knowledge I had to continue growing my knowledge, but also actually dedicate myself to making the world live up to what it says it is already. So yeah, it was, it was certainly not a, a, a one and done process. I think I'm constantly in the process of learning more about these systems and how I can sort of be a better fellow human. And this feels like a good way to do that. Absolutely. So as you've just explained, you're a Latina woman. You, well, you tick a lot of minority boxes, don't you? You describe yourself as a queer, short, loud, opinionated Latina with pink hair. Is the hair still pink at the moment, Aubrey? It isn't actually. It's, uh, it's purple right now. Um, Even better. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I also have multiple disabilities. So I think I usually win like the oppression Olympics although I don't think that's a game we should play. I happen to carry a lot of those identities with me. But something about me that, that's a little bit unique is most of those things are invisible. So most people don't see, except for the pink hair or purple hair, they don't see my disabilities. They don't see um, my you know, racial or ethnic background um, in the same way, which gives me an interesting perspective into both what it feels like to be someone from a majority group, but then also, right, actually being someone from a minority group and experiencing that treatment as well, which I think that particular set of life experiences is something that helps me have empathy for a broad set of people. And I know that element of life experience is something you're so passionate about workplaces really factoring in when it comes to, to recruiting staff, and we'll get to that. Just to give our listeners a bit of background, you left Atlassian in January where you had spent, I believe, close to five mm-hmm. years as their global head of diversity and belonging. You're now at Culture Amp as global head of equitable design and impact. Just tell us about that role and what you hope to achieve. Yeah. So when I was coming on board, um, the job spec, uh, when I was talking to Didier, who's the CEO of Culture Amp, um, was, was spec as the head of diversity and inclusion. Um, and I told him I, I wouldn't accept that job title. I wanted this sort of equitable design and impact. And the title relates to what I want to see in the role. So what I'd really love to see is for our team at Culture Amp to lead the charge in transitioning from a very programmatic recruiting focused sort of diversity and inclusion framework, um, which is what a lot of corporates have, to a very progressive internal internally focused, equitable design practice. So what I mean by that is that with diversity and inclusion, it often ends up being relatively tokenistic and there isn't a lot of responsibility taken for the outcomes. What I mean by that really simply, very few execs get fired if you don't hire enough multicultural people in your company. I don't think I've ever heard of an executive getting fired because a company missed uh, their diversity goals. And so equitable design actually asks a different set of questions, which is it says, what is the world we live in? What are the systems and processes and structures? So everything from performance assessments to how we select high potentials to how we're developing and promoting people to what education we're providing. How do we ensure that we design all of those things to produce equitable or fair outcomes? And then impact is how do we measure to make sure we did it? So it, it's kind of moving from a, a program-based, like checkbox approach to DNI to a systems-aware and a full responsibility and accountability framework for driving fairness within the business. 
and you know, I came to Coltramp because I was a customer before I was an employee and I was such a fan. The idea that I would get to work with the team full time was something I just couldn't pass up. Mm. I want to talk to you more about that concept of belonging. I know you spoke at the Future Women Leadership Summit last year about why you favour belonging over diversity and inclusion. Just elaborate on what you mean by that. Yeah. So I think um, to me, inclusion feels like an incredibly low standard. So inclusion to me is very similar to tolerance. And I genuinely can't imagine a more unpleasant thing than being tolerated, right? That, that means mm. someone doesn't actually want you there, but it's fine. They'll deal with it. And I think that this framework of inclusion lets down people who have been historically marginalized because it, it says, well, we built this space, didn't consider you at all, but like you're fine to show up. And belonging, I think, actually goes a step further and gets us toward this equitable design concept, which is belonging is about creating an experience where someone feels that the space that they're in was designed for them, that they were considered. And so belonging is also, I think, a a core human need. So we know that every human being has a fundamental desire and need to belong. And so I think that belonging is a higher standard and the right one for what we're trying to do, but it also has us ask a different set of questions. So instead of saying like, what do we need to do to get X type of people into this space? That's inclusion. Belonging is what do we need to do to make this type of person feel welcome here? You would rather be in the second place. Of course. And it makes enormous sense. I mean, apart from the benefit to individuals that comes with that sense of belonging and being part of an equitable workplace, what are the benefits for businesses? They're bound to be a plenty. Yeah. So um, honestly, the number one benefit to business is that you get a more highly skilled workforce. So what we know is that when you tend to see a lack of diversity or an imbalance in a workforce, it's a really good signal that you're not actually rewarding the most talented people. You're rewarding folks based on things like demographics rather than potential and impact and and skills. And that's not always conscious, but that tends to be what happens. So I think there's first the, like, you just get a higher quality talent pool when you're actually able to effectively support a broad set of people. I think on the other side, what you'll see is that when you create that culture of belonging where people who are different from each other come together, teams tend to identify more problems and come up with better solutions. You know, you tend to see greater engagement, greater retention, and then there's lots and lots of correlational research on the fact that firms that do this well make more money. What does it take for companies to create a true sense of equity because many industries, and of course the tech industry among them, seems to still be facing diversity fatigue. To be quite frank, I think that the step that most, I say companies, but you know, the individuals that make up the companies need to take as as the most critical first step is taking accountability for where you are. And what I mean by that is often when you hear folks talk about you know, diversity fatigue or the, or the pipeline problem, they're like, well, we just don't know why black people don't work here or why women aren't in, you know, senior leadership roles or why people with disabilities aren't visible in our company. And I think that a lot of times what I see is a reticence for people to own that it was their actions that, you know, our collective actions as a group that got us to the place we are today, which is a place from which we need to make progress. 
So I, th- I think that's one thing that I've seen the most successful companies actually really own that like we weren't taking action aligned with our intention right now. So when you ask why companies haven't made progress, I'll be totally honest. It's because most of the time the executive teams at those companies don't actually want to make progress, but they do want to mind their public image. So they'll, they'll put out statements that they care, but then you'll notice that they don't have properly resourced you know, diversity and inclusion experts internally. There's no metrics or accountability. And so I think that's where you see the biggest difference between companies who make progress and those who don't um, is companies that make progress properly resource this work um, and have accountability at the right levels of the company. I know you're an advocate also for perhaps small everyday changes that are more realistic as opposed to Mm -hmm. big pledges about diversity. A tactic for managers, for example, might be a no interruption policy during meetings. Absolutely. So I'll be totally honest that I don't think pledges do anything and I would be totally fine if I didn't see any more ever again. Because they just don't work. They don't work because they don't change the incentives of the company, of executives, of middle managers, of, you know, frontline employees. And so really what I I talk about is sort of giving everyone a job to create fairness that it's aligned with the responsibilities they already have. So you had such a great example of, you know, we know that underrepresented people tend to be interrupted or not, you know, get the space that they deserve in meetings. So, you know, you as, as a manager, you can't necessarily, you know, solve racism on your own, but you can implement a no interruptions rule in your meeting, which can help underrepresented people get their voices heard. You can make sure that you send out an agenda ahead of time so that introverts or folks who come from cultures where interruptions or sort of, you know, butting in is not considered appropriate. You give people time to collect their thoughts so that everyone can fully participate. As a hiring manager, you are able to answer questions for candidates about what you've done to promote diversity, right? So everyone can have a different role. For a recruiter, it might be that they spend extra effort to source underrepresented candidates. For an executive, they allocate budget for uh, diversity inclusion activities. They insist on pay equity audits within their organization. Mm. So it's not that everyone does everything, but each person has a particular role in moving and evolving a company towards being more equitable and fair. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back after this message from our partner, Uber Eats. Uber Eats is the perfect companion for Aussies on the go. They're for you at home, at work or on holidays. Uber Eats has more than 20,000 restaurants offering fresh and delicious meals at the click of a button. Thanks to Uber Rewards, more than a million Australians are already earning loyalty points on every order on Uber Eats. Download Uber Eats from the App Store and celebrate local restaurants today or explore the new grocery option to get your essentials without visiting the supermarket. Uber Eats, connecting what matters. Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit most budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com. Welcome back to Drive, where my guest today is Aubrey Blanche. Future Women's all about advancing women and to get them into leadership positions. I know you're familiar with it. What do you think is the major block preventing women getting to the top? Is it men refusing to give up power? 
I mean, that's definitely a part of it. What I tend to see and I appreciate is there's so much good intention by men to say we want to support women. But I think, you know, my my question that I offer to anyone who wants to position themselves as an ally to any group who's been denied fair opportunity is, and what have you done in service of that mission? Who have you put in a leadership role instead of yourself? You know, when we talk about gender, I think that there's a couple of things. So what tends to hold white women back is men who either consciously or unconsciously are keeping them back. But I think it's also really important to talk about the ways that many women are held back by other women. So what you see in the tech industry is that in Silicon Valley, I have good data for this. Uh, they show that, you know, we've been talking about diversity inclusion uh, on the West Coast for the, the latest sort of push uh, is about six years old now. And what we see is that almost all of the progress that's been advanced has gone to white women, while black women have actually reduced their overall representation in the industry. And so if I say there is one thing that's holding women back or women and, and people of, of other diverse genders, it's that we're we're focusing on women as a group and not considering that there are many women within that group who actually need additional support. And so the solution is actually really easy, which is um, black women to the front of the line first. So when we think about women, how do we design, and this is something we use at CultureAmp, it's a methodology I used at Atlassian, which is that we always consider intersectionally marginalized people as the design case. So how do we guarantee that if I design a system or a process or something for women of color or for black women, it turns out that almost always much of what I designed also supports, for example, white women. Or if I do this for disabled women, it also supports non-disabled women. Mm. But when we focus on the big category and, and don't think about those edges, we tend to actually only advance the majority group mm-hmm. uh, within that. So I think what I would love to see, and I'm seeing some energy around this, which makes me super optimistic and I'm grateful you know, to be doing this work in this time is is saying, what are we doing for those of us who are in this group who have some privilege? How do we share that? How do we actually make sure that we are all coming up together rather than it being sort of this staggered race where women of color are consistently and again left behind? And that's a big passion for me, obviously, as someone I've had a lot of opportunity, but I I very much feel like the anomaly. So women can and in fact need to be active allies to each other. Absolutely. And I think it comes down to if, if folks say, like, I don't know, how do I be an ally? Think about an aspect of your identity or experience in which you have an advantage or a privilege and go figure out what knowledge or access you have that you can share with someone who lacks it. But if you're not sure, start with race and ethnicity. Um, it's one of the hardest sort of problems to solve in the DEI space. And I mean that from a creating equitable outcomes. So what I find is that if people are... Um, can be really, really successful allies across the line of race or ethnicity, they tend to also have built the skills that make them really successful allies in other communities, in other ways, but that that arrow doesn't work as well backward. Mm, I love that. What does excellent leadership look like to you? Or, Or maybe what does it feel like to you? On a personal level, the thing I love most about leadership or how I feel when I think I'm doing a good job is I will see something that exists in the world because I moved something out of the way for someone else. So as a leader, when I see someone who I'm leading or who I'm supporting that has brought something that only they would have created, 
into the world and I supported them in doing that. I think that's basically the most rewarding <laughs> leadership mm. moment is, you know, you get to see people to stretch and grow and sort of get closer to their potential. And, you know, then you just feel lucky that you live in a world where that's true. So that for me, but, but when I think about like, what does leadership really look like in 2020? I think that real leadership is courageous. It's willing to question the way things have been done before and to really take a deep ownership over the impact of your choices and your decisions as leaders and really incorporating a deep understanding of ethics into that, um, which I think is something that in the business community hasn't been always emphasized in the way that I'd love, but a great leader does the right thing, has a deep philosophy on organizational justice, takes accountability for their organization and the, and the impact of their actions, and then gets a lot of fulfillment out of watching other people thrive. I want to talk to you about the COVID pandemic because, as we know, it's presented mm-hmm. a huge set of challenges for, for organisations such as yours. In the US, of course, you're also grappling with issues of police violence and racism that, that have garnered worldwide attention. It's certainly gained traction here in Australia. How is Culture Amp looking after employees in this, this time of upheaval and how are you holding up? I, I bounce back and forth between like deep gratitude that change is happening and like absolute rage that white folks didn't notice how bad it was <laughs> until last month, which feels like a pretty fair place to be emotionally. But thinking about Culture Amp, you know, we went full distributed and remote, like uh, a lot of companies. And I think the fact that we were a global company, you know, headquartered in Melbourne, uh, but have presence in San Francisco, New York, and London, meant that we weathered that transition pretty well. But really, I think the biggest challenge for us and what many of our customers are seeing is it's not just about work from home, right? There was a tweet I saw that, that summed it up, which is you're not working from home. You are at home in a pandemic trying to get work done. Yeah. Far more accurate. You know, a lot of our employees, there's just a lot of environmental stress and anxiety and change that's real. And then for our black employees, obviously, who are feeling the direct impact of the sudden, um, I don't want to say increase in police brutality, because quite frankly, that is the the history of policing in America. But this sort of this energy and this pressure, but also you have to understand that even though there's potentially some great change that can come out of this, it's still incredibly traumatic um, for those communities to be seeing this. So what we're trying to do is, is support our employees as much as we can in terms of COVID. That's you know, providing additional leave, offering resources um, and support on things like grieving and grief and, and resilience, um, additional support to managers. And then in terms of the ongoing protests against police brutality and racism, we put out some commitments. Um, I'm, I would welcome folks to go uh, check them out on our website. But we've really looked internal and said, you know, what can Culture Amp do to, as an organization, really evolve ourselves to be an actively anti-racist organization. So we've launched an explicit mental health program for our Black employees to help support them during this time. We're launching white ally initiatives. We are updating our goals. So this is always a part of our equitable design framework. But we've we've launched a variety of initiatives and sort of made our, our plans for this year more aggressive. And so I think that the companies that ultimately win will do that is is uh, 
you know, the phrase is never waste a waste a crisis. And I think Culture Imp is saying, you know, what can we do this year um, that really puts puts our cards on the table about about being a culture first and sort of a people first organization. And the other thing we're doing a lot, which I feel obligated to mention, is we're listening mm. to our employees and trying to take action based on what they're telling us. Caring is at the heart of of all of this, the heart of your career space, that's for sure. Not just having Mm -hmm. a genuine care for others, but also needing to constantly, I guess, educate, enlighten people about racism and discrimination issues. You mentioned Mm -hmm. often feeling rather emotionally spent. How do you take time out so that you can recalibrate? Are you someone who can switch off fairly easily? I'm a big fan of, of yoga, meditation, you know, all of those things to, to help us learn to have a healthier relationship with our emotions. And so, yeah, how do I unplug? I think any, any chief diversity officer that exists will tell you that you have to reorient a lot of your life um, in order to do this work sustainably because it does take a lot of emotional energy. But for me, it's making sure that in addition to the dedication I put into my work, I'm taking care of myself first and foremost every day. So if you really want to know, I have a daily self-care seven-item checklist. I make sure that I drink enough water. I try to eat whole foods. I have two therapists, a very deep um, friends and family support network, and a lot of people that hold me accountable to my, my personal, you know, sort of emotional and spiritual growth, which I think ultimately informs the work. So it's definitely a lot of effort caring for myself to do the work, but it's been in the last couple of years that I have uh, truly internalized the, you have to put your mask on first. I want to get a few quick recommendations from you now, if I could. When we can travel without restrictions, what is the next destination on your list? Oh, I mean, Melbourne. (laughs) You have to say that. No, I don't even have to say it. Um, I've only been there once and the food was really good and I'd like to eat more of it. I hear that the coffee's better in Melbourne than Sydney, but I don't think I'm supposed to say that. Oh, controversial. Um, (laughs) I know. Um, I would honestly love to get to Melbourne just to get to know the city better, but also to go visit a bunch of my teammates who I feel so lucky to get to work for, um, who we've only met on Zoom. So that would be great. And frankly, just missing Australia. Oh, we will be welcoming you back with open arms, that's for sure. What about podcasts? Do you listen to them? And and is there a particular one that's caught your interest recently? So I'm not a huge podcast person, and this is going to make me sound like this was planted. But the only podcast I listen to consistently is Culture First by Culture Amp. And that was true before I worked for Culture Amp. I just like to say, I think Damon, who does that, I think that the topics he covers are so brave and what he gets out of the guests that he brings on is really unique in the management space and honestly influenced my wanting to come to Culture Amp. Uh, So for leaders who really want to be forward thinking and progressive and very human centered, that podcast informs me every month. And so if you want to know what's, what's influencing me, go check that out. Okay. We'll add that to the list. What about apps? Is there a particular app you couldn't live without? I couldn't live without besides WhatsApp. (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm probably on Slack more than any other app. The other one that I, I always tell people is uh, signal. So a long time ago, I used to work in, in the realm of data privacy. And so I'm always really thoughtful about my, my sort of privacy footprint. And so Signal is a uh, secure SMS app. 
even if I'm only talking about things as uninteresting as, you know, a picnic. (laughs) We're writing that down as you speak. Now, what about reading books? Do you gravitate towards fiction? Do you prefer nonfiction? Is there a book you've read recently that's left a lasting impression? Yes. So I am one of the most voracious readers I know. Uh, People who know this know that I consume books uh, like oxygen. So my goal for this year was to read 120 books in 2020. (sighs) And I think I'm at 64, 65 for the year. Wow. If people want to know what I'm reading, uh, you're welcome to ping me on Twitter. I'll send you my Goodreads. I actually keep a public list of everything I've read by year. Do you write them? Uh, sometimes I do. It's less about that. And what I find is that what I'm reading is a good map for where my brain is at at any given point. Um, so I tend to be, uh, a deep, deep nonfiction person, and I'm trying very hard to read more fiction and poetry. A book that I've read it many, many times. Um, but Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House is one of those, sort of core texts in sort of social justice and really informs the work I do. So if folks really want to do anti-racism and, you know, DEI correctly, I would say go read that. It's not very long. The other books that I always want to recommend to folks are Is Anything by Pema Chodron. So I'm a big adherent of hers. I appreciate her teachings and I've found that they have made me a better person and therefore a better leader and therefore a better, you know, chief diversity officer. But yes, genuinely, people can get in touch with me if they want my reading recommendations. I'm always very, very happy to give them. Just finally, Aubrey, I want to ask you when you're at your happiest. Oh, I actually, um, I I guess I'm I'm rejecting the premise. I actually don't seek to be happy. I seek to have joy. And they're they're slightly different in that I think that joy or well-being Uh, This is very based on Martin Seligman's sort of positive psychology work. But I try really hard to have well-being and joy, which to me is is a very steady state sort of gratitude for the space that you're in. I think happiness is a thing that's easy to chase, but is often very fleeting. And so for me, I really believe that I get the most fulfillment and joy out of making choices that are aligned with my values and being able to connect with people on a deep level and and learn more about what makes them special and unique. And then taking that knowledge and sort of trying to build a world in which that uniqueness and sort of wondrousness about another person can be expressed. That was quite deep, but that was honest, so. Well, I wish you endless well-being and joy. It's been an absolute delight to speak to you today. <laughs> thank you. Aubrey, thank you for joining me on Drive. Thank you so much for having me. I, I feel really honored to be included. Thanks again for listening to Drive, a future women podcast in partnership with Uber Eats, produced by Fancy Films. I hope you can join me again on Wednesday for Drive. And if you could, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. See you then.